Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. But this morning, uh, if you noticed in my check-in, I'm, I'm asking a question. What do you do when you're having a bad day? What do you do when you're having a bad day? Hey, let's pray. Father, as we gather now just for a few minutes around your word, we so thank you, God, that your word is not some sacred historic religious text, that it is real, it is living, it's a living thing. That, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you just breathe into our lives words of life. And even as we tackle this topic today, I pray maybe it helps us shift perspective a little. It helps us have a, a different understanding on some of the uncertainties, the anxieties of life, those seasons that we sometimes have no explanation for. May you just switch a light on in our heart today. And may we be richer for this time together in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you do when you're having a bad day? Well, there's a lot of memes that would suggest you need to go for a walk on the beach. It's what you do when you're having a bad day. You need to just pause and stop and consider and be thankful because there's always somebody worse off than you are. That's it. See you later. Uh, who knows those kinds of things aren't necessarily terribly helpful on a day when you're having a bad day. And we kind of give platitudes and think, well, you know, go for a walk on the beach. Just realise there's people in the world that are worse off than you. Uh, and even as I was thinking that, I couldn't help but think of Basil Fawlty. Any Fawlty Towers fans here today? <laughs> I remember he was encouraged when he was having a really bad day and he was given those exact words and he said, just remember, Mr. Faulty, there's always somebody worse off than you. To which he replied, good, I'd like to meet them. I can do with a laugh. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that's our approach today. I'm also not suggesting those things are not useful. It is good to change your environment, change your scenery. Sometimes walking on a beach, sitting on a rock on the side of a mountain... Just connecting with God, is, is, it, it is medicine for your soul. Uh, and I'm also not suggesting that contemplating the fact that we are so incredibly blessed, living from a position of gratitude, not from a position of entitlement, is really, really critical to maintaining a right heart and attitude. But what do we do when we're having a bad day? I, I want to dig into the words of the Apostle Paul. He writes two letters to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, and I think the, the letter of 2 Corinthians is perhaps um, one of the most autobiographical letters that Paul writes. Because you get a bit of an insight as he lifts the lid of his personal life. You, you get an insight into his personal struggles, his personal pains, and he shares in this letter some really deeply personal things. For example, he talks about, and he's really specific, about the kinds of sufferings and persecutions that, he has faced, that he's faced. 
we get this picture of Paul uh, just giving us a glimpse of the frailness of his own humanity. He talks about his tears, his afflictions. He talks at one point about this sense of satanic oppression that he was feeling. Again, he talks about his imprisonment and the persecution that he had to endure. He talks about the numerous beatings that he received. He talks about feelings of despair. He talks about physical hunger. He talks about uh, being shipwrecked. He talks about lacking sleep, sleepless nights. We can all relate to that often. He talks about um, the well-known thorn in the flesh that he had to contend with. Of all the people that I admire in the pages of God's word, I think Paul kind of hovers towards the top of the list. And one of the reasons that he does is not only because he's just an amazing trailblazing church planting pioneer, uh, a pretty uh, no-nonsense type A personality, but we also see his very human side. And I like that. And here's the good news. Paul was a man with very real problems, very real struggles, very real doubts, very real insecurities, just like us. And as he lifts the lid on his own anguish, his own pain, his own personal pain, he begins this letter of 2 Corinthians with words of comfort, which is actually pretty rare for Paul, again, given his personality type. But he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we, were, if we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Ten times in three verses Paul uses there the word comfort. In the original language that this is written in the Greek it's a word called parakaleo. And it's a beautiful picture because it means to, to come alongside, to draw alongside. And can I say for us, the church 
should be a place of comfort. The church should be a place of parakaleo, where we feel that sense of just drawing alongside one another, doing the hard yards, being real about the issues of life. We don't have to come into this place pretending we've got it all together. And I love that about our church. We're pretty real. And so we can be transparent without feeling I'm going to be judged. We just love one another, recognizing we're all on a different stage of this journey and we're here just to support one another and walk the journey together. So our church should be a place of parakaleo, a place where we draw alongside. And let me encourage you, this involves so much more than just a casual bless you. You know, we're pretty good at chucking that one out, aren't we? It involves a lot more than a well-intended but seldom followed through, I'll pray for you. Can I encourage you, if somebody has shared a need and your response is, hey, I'll pray for you, do it there. Do it in the moment. And that means so much more. And what that conveys is, I'm here for you right now. Not, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you during the week. Let's go and have a coffee. But hey, let me pray for you right now. Now, you don't need to feel awkward about that in this place. I would love just to see people just all over the room, just praying for one another. So let us be intentional about being a Paracaleo community where we are drawing alongside, where we display this deep down, genuine compassion and sympathy. And I think if we get this right as a church, uh, God's pretty pleased. And the reason he's pleased is because it's actually something that reflects the character and the nature of God. In fact, Paul gives us insight into this aspect of God's character when he writes in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. And you've got to know this morning, whoever you are, God is not disinterested in your life. God is not disconnected. He does not have his back turned. God is not removed, particularly when you are going through struggles and the struggles just don't seem to make sense. And I want to encourage you this morning, we've got to start asking the right questions because sometimes when unexpected challenges and suffering and persecution happens, we, we ask a question which is, where is God in this? Now we can answer that question by saying, God is in the middle. God is right there. He hasn't let you go. He is upholding you with his righteous right hand, the Bible says. God is the God of all comfort. What we've got to start asking is, what is God showing me in this? Now, there's something else worth noting in chapter 1 concerning the nature of suffering. And each of these three things that Paul mentions are introduced with the word, so that. And Paul gives us Beautiful insight into a really, really powerful truth that God actually wants to redeem the deepest points of pain in your life. 
God wants to redeem those things. He wants to actually turn them round to be something that is actually a source of blessing to others. And we need to understand this. Verse 3, again, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Friends, we've got to understand God wastes nothing. And so often we can be going through a trial and we say, God, where are you in this? What's going on? I don't like this. I just want out. And God, it's your responsibility to get me out of this. I just want to be free from this. And we live with an escapist mentality that says, this is not supposed to be and I just want a way out. And God says, I want to lead you through this. I want to lead you out of this. But far greater than that, I want to redeem this. I want to redeem a pain point to become something that can be used so positively to support and to encourage others. God redeems our suffering, which gives us then the capacity to enter into another person's sorrow, another person's pain and another person's suffering. I mean, there's no question. You find the greatest comfort and the most genuine encouragement in a trial from those who have gone through exactly the same thing and have come out the other end. Is that true? I mean, if if you're facing some disease or some illness, the greatest words of encouragement are from those who have been there and say, it's okay. God brought me through, God can bring you through. The same can be said for times of of grief and sorrow and loss. That we can say, hey, I've been there and I'm walking that journey with you. Times of uncertainty, times of confusion, times where you're just feeling, I'm just enduring a circumstance that is so unfair and so unjust right now. You want to hear from those who have been there, who draw alongside and say, it's okay, God is with you. God will bring you through. He did it for me. I know he can do it for you. Even even times of things like financial stress and burden and pressure, just hear from others, God brought me through. God will provide. And God gives us the capacity to so thoroughly understand and empathize meaningfully with somebody else because we've walked that journey. Secondly, God also redeems our pain in that it can be the very thing that actually draws us closer to Him so that we will learn in a far deeper way what it means to rely and to depend upon God instead of relying upon our own resources and wisdom and strength and understanding, which can fail us when we're going through bad stuff, when we're having a bad day. Paul says in verse 9, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely upon ourselves, but on God, 
who raises the dead. And there's no question that those, those moments that catch us off guard, those bad days when they happen, they can drive us to our knees and drive us closer to the heart and the assurance that only God can bring. Anybody who's been a Christian any length of time will tell you unequivocally that the greatest times of spiritual growth in a person's life happen in the tough times, not in the good times. Is that true? And let me encourage you, it's not actually freedom from hardship and freedom from trials that are the sign of mature faith. And the word of faith movement would differ with that. They say, well, you should just be living a blessed life. But it's not freedom from hardships that are the indicator of a blessed life. The, the sign of Christian maturity is the perspective and the way that we approach those challenges. How do we deal with the stuff of life? That bears witness to the maturity of our faith. Thirdly, it helps us develop a really, really healthy habit in the tough times. And that's the habit of giving thanks. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and will continue to deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You see, there's something that we often forget when we are celebrating great testimonies of God's goodness. The testimonies that we hear and the testimonies that we cheer and the testimonies that we praise God for actually had their origin at a place of deep pain and suffering. It was a suffering and a test for the person that God ultimately delivered. You see, there cannot be a testimony of God's deliverance without some painful season that somebody has been delivered from. So how often do we say, thank you, God, for this test? Thank you, God, for this bad day. Thank you, God, for this difficult season. Actually, it doesn't make sense when we think of it in those terms. But Paul, in another letter, says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 16, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. I've spoken about this particular thing a number of times before, but we needed to have it drummed into us. And so forgive me for detouring there for a second. Give thanks in all circumstances. Just doesn't make sense. Hey, God, went to work today, wasn't expecting it, but uh, I got fired. Thank you. Doesn't make sense, does it? Because, friends, giving thanks is not being polite to God. It is so much deeper than that. What does it mean to give thanks? When somebody does something for us, they might serve us a meal, give us a gift, make us a cup of coffee, open a door for us, whatever it is, we have this inbuilt response to say, thank you. And a part of that is good manners. A part of that is being polite. 
But at a deeper level, there is something more in that expression of thanks because it's also an expression of dependency. Thank you. I was dependent upon you to do that for me. Thank you. And in regards to God, when Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, he's not saying, use good manners. He's saying, live your life from a perspective that in all things, I am totally dependent upon you. God, I give you thanks. I express my dependency upon you in every circumstance, good or bad. Again, Paul writes about it when he's writing to the church in in, uh, the, the Philippian church. Uh, Philippians 4 and 6, do not be anxious about anything. Well, easy for you to say. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So the encouragement is in any circumstance, no matter what kind of day you're having, in every circumstance, a circumstance that maybe would normally frighten you, that would normally make you anxious, instead give it to God saying, thank you. Again, not somehow trying to be polite and muster up something that seems so foreign. God, I'm dependent upon you. In this circumstance, God, I recognize this is bigger than me. I know it's not bigger than you. This threatens me. It doesn't threaten you. This might overwhelm me. God, it doesn't overwhelm you. And I live my life from a position of total dependency upon you, God. Thank you. Make sense? Again, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 16, Be joyful, always pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Whether you're feeling good or you're feeling bad, whether the circumstance is nice, whether the circumstance is unpleasant, in everything we live with total dependency upon God. Even in your deepest, darkest moment, even on your worst day, there's only one thing that I can cling to, Jesus You're all I need. Thank you. And then the second part of verse 11, he says, Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And this is one of the most powerful things about us as a church family. This is why gathering together is so important. God has created us. Not to live life in isolation. He has created us and fashioned us for community. So we're called to do life together. We're designed to do life together. And Paul alludes to that in this verse. We thank him for the the prayers of many. And I love this because sometimes, no question, in the greatest pain points, in the greatest trial, in the deepest, darkest hole, Sometimes, let's be real, it's even hard to pray. And the beauty is, together, we have others praying in those spaces where we can't even muster that up for ourselves. And others are praying for us. And God is honouring the prayers of others. And this is such a beautiful attribute of fellowship that we get to do this together. This is when we need each other. And Paul says, there are many We'll give thanks. On our behalf, we couldn't do it, but they were. For the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And together we pray for one another. Together we encourage one another in your struggles, in the trials you face. We join with you. We join together in praying for the things that are important to you. 
You know, we gather every Tuesday morning. One of the things we do as staff is we go through the prayer requests that we receive during the week. And you've got to be confident to be able to share those prayer requests because let me tell you, we never look at those prayer requests and go, oh, really? Gee, they must be really spiritually immature if they need us to be praying for that. Why can't they believe for that for themselves? That's never the attitude. The attitude is always, God, what an awesome privilege we have of standing with those in this matter, in this situation. It's important to them. It's critical to them. And God, we stand with them in prayer. And can I say this this morning? If we cannot share our struggles in confidence with one another in this place, then we've got some work to do and we're doing something wrong. So what do we do on a bad day? Three keys as I wrap this up. And we'll go to the guy that probably in the pages of God's word had the worst day, a guy called Job. Many of us are familiar with him. Job 1 and 2, he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. In fact, God's description of Job in verse 8, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's a pretty good rap. Job was a man respected by everyone. Why? Because he was blameless, upright and God-fearing. The Bible tells us he had 10 children, thousands of head of livestock, acres and acres of land, many, many servants and a whole truckload of money. He was known as the greatest man in the East, which is a reputation he had earned because he was a man of incredible integrity in the way that he dealt with everybody. In fact, even his name, Job, actually refers to uh, integrity and godliness. Yet within a matter of hours, his whole world comes crashing down around him. He lost his livestock, he lost his crops, he lost his land, he lost his servants. Worst of all, he lost his 10 kids. And after that, his health declined. Now maybe there are elements of Job's life that we can relate to maybe this morning there's people here carrying such a heaviness because of your circumstances the book of Job most of it's kind of like this journal of this guy's life and shortly after the worst day of his life when his whole life fell apart he wrote this entry Job 1 and 21 Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Then in verse 22 we read, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Man, I tell you, how can this guy maintain that right heart and attitude in the face of all that he was experiencing? Can you try and imagine where Job was at this particular point in his life? He was totally bankrupt. He was in physical pain. He just stood beside 10 freshly dug graves. Imagine the emptiness that he would have been feeling, the loneliness he would have been feeling. 
Yet the Bible tells us he did not blame his maker. In fact, he worshipped his God. That's remarkable. And most of us are sitting there going, how can he possibly do that? What kept him from being angry? What kept him from being bitter? What kept him from screaming at God and cursing him? Now, there's a danger that I'm oversimplifying this morning and I do not want in any way to make light of very real struggles and problems in your life, but three quick keys. Number one, as you look at Job's life on his worst day, first thing he did was look up. Job recognised God's absolute sovereignty. He believed The Lord has given, praise him on a good day, but the Lord has a right to take away and I'll even praise him on a bad day. In fact, he says this, Job 2 and 10, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And Job simply claimed God's right to be the absolute Lord of his life. Someone once said this, it is a fool who says to God that he has no right to add sand to our clay or marks to our vessel or fire to his workmanship. Only a fool lifts a clay fist heavenward and questions the potter's plan. That's pretty powerful. So the first thing Job did is just look up and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I know my life is in your hands. Secondly, Job looked ahead and what he did was grab a hold of what we all need to grab a hold of. And that is an eternal perspective. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we shall all say an amen to that. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. And Job's ultimate hope, he had no idea what lay ahead. He had no idea whether his life would get better or worse. And in the midst of the deepest uncertainty, even in his pain, (coughs) he lived his life with an eternal perspective. He lived his life through that lens of eternity and he knew that God had made a promise. A promise that there is a day coming where everything would be perfected. A promise that there is a day coming where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears, that there is a beautiful life in the life to come. He knew that all pain, all death, all sorrow, all tears all adversity would be removed. And as Paul writes in Romans 5 and 5, he says, hope does not disappoint. Job was able to endure the worst day of his life by keeping his eyes firmly fixed upon the promise of what God has in store for a future, our future. And then thirdly, I'll invite the team to come back. Job looked within And let me say, as you read his story, you can see a great transparency before God. 
He confessed before God, I don't know what's going on. He confessed his own lack of understanding. That's not a sign of weakness. In fact, it's really, really liberating. Job couldn't explain his circumstances, but he also didn't feel the need to have an explanation. He didn't know why these things were happening. Here's his admission in Job 42 and 2. I know, God, you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And you asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And again, what Job is simply stating here is, I got no idea what's going on right now. But I know that God does and that's all I need to know. Job is saying, God, I don't know why, but I don't need to know why. I just know on my worst day, I've got to hang on and trust you. Another message that I, where I talk about mercy, I say this, that our world today in many ways is in turmoil because where there's an absence of inner peace, people demand answers. And people say things, well, I just, uh, I will not believe in God until all my questions are answered. And I think sadly, even some Christians live their life in this way. We love God, we experience His grace, but we still live our lives largely in turmoil without the presence of peace. And it seems for us, some of us, there's still this demand for answers. God, until I have all the answers, I cannot possibly find peace in my life. Until God gives me understanding, this situation will remain unresolved. But friends, let me remind you this morning, the key to life is not having all of your questions answered. And in fact, God never promises that He will answer all of your questions. He promises us something far deeper, something far more satisfying. And we find it in Philippians 4 and 6, which we referred to earlier. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And when we do that, here's the promise and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do we take our request to God and in response, God says, I'm going to give you the answer to every question you have? No, what He does promise us is something so more profound. He says, I will give you peace where there can be no answers this side of eternity. I'll give you peace. That's what you need. And friends, inner peace removes the demand for answers. And I'm sure Job experienced on his worst day that peace that transcends all understanding. God, I don't know what's going on, but because of your wonderful peace within, I don't, I don't demand anything. I just know you're here in this moment. Friends, maybe you're going through stuff right now. Maybe you're going through a season of life that seems so unconfused, so painful, so difficult. Or maybe that's not the case for you at all this morning. Maybe you're just... You're just riding the wave at the moment and it's awesome. 
everything feels right and in balance. We praise God for those seasons. But let let me remind you that that's exactly the wave that Job was riding the day before everything came crashing down. And what was Job's strategy in all of that? He looked up. He looked ahead with an eternal perspective and he looked within. God, I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Got a lot of questions, but your overwhelming peace removes the demand for answers. And maybe it's the case for you that you're climbing over some pretty big rocks in your life right now. Don't do it alone. That's why we're here together. Not to gather in a room for an hour and a half on a Sunday, but to do life together. I'll finish with these words from a 20th century author, a bit of a philosopher. Uh, He was a journalist, a guy called Malcolm Muggeridge, quite famous through the, certainly the, the middle part of the 20th century. And he said these words, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not through happiness. In other words, If it were ever to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by the means of some drug or other medical miracle, the result would not to to, to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. And then here's his profound perspective. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has drawn me to Christ. And all we've got to look at on a bad day is the pain of our Saviour who endured the torture of a cross, who reaches out to us on our bad day and says, it's okay, I've got this. I've got this. Lean into me. Lean not on your own understanding. Find my strength. Find that eternal purpose. Lift your eyes up. Lift your eyes forward. And look within. Be honest. And reach out for that wonderful peace that transcends all understanding. And know that God is carrying you. What Job didn't see on his worst day is at the other end, God totally restored everything that had been lost. And it wasn't just a new start. It was the favour of God all over his life. And together in a beautiful community of Parakaleo, that godly comfort, we just walk with one another, champion one another in the journeys of life, the struggles of life, the pains of life, the joys of life. And this is a great place to be when we're having a bad day. Amen. So I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, that when we're going through a bad day, you've not abandoned us. In fact, it's the opposite. That's when we can discover you at the deepest level. 
when we're robbed even of our own resources to be able to lean into you and say, God, you know my heart. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know the answers. I don't know what's going on. But also, I trust you. And I know I don't need to know what's going on. I just need to lean into the God who perfectly understands everything. You see my present, but you see my future. And Father, I also accept that you can bring beauty out of ashes. You can bring blessing out of pain. That you can redeem even those points of deepest hurt in our lives. I can't comprehend, Lord God, the depth of your knowledge and your wisdom and the way that you work. But what I do know is that you don't waste a moment. And I thank you that in community together, we encourage one another. And so often we're actually encouraging one another out of those testimonies of our own pain, which is a sign of how wonderfully you redeem even those deepest hurts. So as Paul says, that we can bring the same comfort that we ourselves have received, that we can share in the sufferings of others because we've been through it. And so God, we we don't want to resent pain. We don't like it. But Father, may we change our perspective by looking up, looking ahead, and looking within. Grow this message in our hearts so that when the next bad day, bad season, unexpected trial happens, we're better equipped. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, church.